Hello, and welcome to the July edition of the Heart Failure Beat. I'm Mike Rich, Senior Associate Editor for the Journal of Cardiac Failure. And today I will be joined by three authors of research letters published in the July 2020 issue of the journal. By way of introduction, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to dramatic changes in healthcare delivery. And the Heart Failure Society of America quickly responded by developing a statement on virtual visits for the care of patients with heart failure in the era of COVID-19, published originally online in April and in the June print issue of the Journal of Cardiac Failure. Today, we will be expanding the discussion of the impact of COVID-19 on care delivery for heart failure patients. And I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Colleen McElvenon from the University of Colorado, Dr. Priya Umapathy from Johns Hopkins University, and Dr. Oz Omufla from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. So welcome and thanks to all of you for joining. Thank you for having us. Colleen, let me you. Your group conducted a survey on changes in care delivery in the heart failure community. Can you describe your study and tell us what you learned? Yes, and thank you so much for having us, Dr. Rich. I was able to work with a team of colleagues to better understand how COVID-19 has affected heart failure care in the United States. We leveraged the infrastructure of the existing Connect HF clinical trial and developed a survey which was sent to 149 site investigators. Over a two-week period in April and May of this year, 83 unique heart failure programs from 32 states responded. And from the survey, we found some expected and unexpected changes in heart failure care delivery. First, we found that all programs experienced decreased in-person outpatient visits, with programs reporting an average of 70% of visits converted to telehealth. Interestingly, for patients presenting with worsened heart failure symptoms, over 50% of programs did not change their threshold for hospitalization. 95% of programs reported routine assessment of guideline-directed medical therapy during telehealth visits, including addressing medication dosages. The potential concern about increased risk of COVID-19 infection with the use of ACE inhibitors or ARBs was discounted by about half of heart failure programs. We also looked at free text responses, which revealed several themes, including that programs reported a lower volume of heart failure admissions and inpatient census, that most heart failure research activities were halted, and most study coordinators were no longer on site. And last and probably most importantly, programs reported patients' expressions of fear and reluctance to visit the hospital, along with a lower likelihood of reporting symptoms early. We were able to learn from this study that the COVID-19 pandemic has created a rapid evolution of heart failure care delivery. Because of this, we feel there is a need for further evaluation of the impact of these changes, revised guidelines and protocols for telehealth care delivery, and efforts to address patients' fear of seeking care. All right, thanks very much. I'm gonna now turn to Dr. Uma Pathy. Priya, you reported your group's experience with the Heart Failure Disease Management Clinic in the early days of COVID-19. What did you find and what are the implications for the care of patients with heart failure? Yes, doctors. Thanks so much also for 
allowing us to share our experience with you. So this was sort of an observational study that was done at our heart failure bridge clinic. The bridge clinic was established at Johns Hopkins about 10 years ago. It's a full complement of services, including evaluation by nurse practitioners and advanced providers uh, that is able to do IV diuretics and medication changes, as well as drawing labs, etc. So we see a fair volume of patients, you know, as hospital discharges, as well as follow-up visits. And during this COVID era, what we did is we looked at our best practices and how our service model changed. So when uh, we went on lockdown in Maryland, so that was about March 16th or so, we re-themed and restructured our program and the way we delivered our care in response to concerns that patients obviously had well-founded ones to avoid hospitalization and hospital settings, especially heart failure patients who are especially high risk for contracting COVID-19 and serious mortality associated with it. So what we did is we moved to a telehealth model in our clinic. So we had about 116 patients. So between March 16th to April 24th or so, that period of time, we looked at who came to our clinic. And about 116 patients or so, some, most of them were new patients seen either for worsening heart failure or post-heart failure admissions. And we found that we saw them in a way, quote-unquote, saw them 164 times also during this period. Of that period of time, about 58.5%, so almost 60% of those visits were done via telemedicine. So we went from not using it at all to gradually sort of ramping up and using it with a distribution of teleaudio and televideo, depending on patient capabilities, which I'll touch upon a little bit at the end of what I described in our study. And we found that when we did these telemedicine visits, we were able to adjust diuretics, you know, maybe 16% of the time we had to make a decrease or an increase in the dose, but minimal titrations, uh, well visits, and a very small percentage of those patients were actually referred for in-person visits or assessments. The folks who did get triage to be seen in person were about 40% or so, the folks that we referred from our telemedicine visits. And we found that those folks, we did aggressively titrate diuretics, both things like using metolazone as well as IV diuretics. But what we did find happily was at the end of the study period, all of our telemedicine patients remained out of the hospital after 30 days. The folks that we had triaged to in-person visits, about eight of them or so had a hospitalization within the 30 days following the study period. So there's a couple of different factors that I think go into that. So two comments about this observational experience that we're sharing with you folks. One is the power of telemedicine. I think it has been used and it's been highlighted for a few years that, you know, there are a lot of niche markets that have, you know, veiled it, you know, people traveling long distances, et cetera, et cetera. Those barriers are overcome by using telemedicine. But I will say that this is the first time that it's come out full force as a need-based tool. And some things that we learned was that this sort of stopgap mechanism where you're able to deliver a titratable therapy for heart failure, intravenous diuretics, bypassing an emergency room or a hospitalization, probably did prevent a number of hospitalizations for our patient cohort, our high-risk cohort. The other things that we took away from this is how to better implement telemedicine as a viable strategy. And some things that we came away with was A, it's true. For the sickest of the sick, in-person assessment, there's no substitute for that for a physical exam, et cetera, et cetera. But some things that will help 
the population is if you do have a hospitalization, to set patients up and empower them to have technology that makes telemedicine possible for them to have an app or something on their phone that's installed and that they're able to use at home. Because we found that was a big barrier for the actual adoption of telemedicine for us to be able to communicate with them in a reliable way. The other piece is also to use remote monitoring technology, ICDs that have hot logic, optival, not to talk about proprietary systems, but other methods, including I think Oz is going to talk about the PA catheter and how you're going to use that as part of your telemedicine armamentarium. So some of these things are ripe for innovation and for integration in telemedicine. So these are the two things that I took away from our experience in our bridge clinic is that yes, using an adjunct diuretic-based clinic can spare patients in this high-risk era from hospitalization, as well as using other non-invasive sort of remote monitoring technologies to assess parameters like PA pressures, as well as heart rhythm variability, et cetera, et cetera. So. Okay, great. Thanks very much. You know, in addition to virtual visits, COVID-19 has stimulated interest in the potential for remote patient monitoring to play a greater role in the care of our patients with heart failure. And with that in mind, I'd like to ask Oz to describe your study of pulmonary artery pressure monitoring in the era of COVID-19. Absolutely. Thank you for having us, Dr. Rich, and having the, uh, the pleasure of being with my colleagues and really learning a lot from their enlightening research, especially as a nice segue to where my topic is, as Prey has mentioned, that now we're moving toward more virtual care and remote monitoring. So at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, in the first two months of the pandemic, we noted a marked decline in rates of ED visits and hospitalizations for heart failure. And our concern was that maybe our patients were decompensating at home, but they just feel too afraid of coming to the hospital, and they only come up when they're present too late and have worse outcomes, just like patients who have STEMI or acute coronary syndrome. So to check on our patients better, we leveraged our access to ambulatory hemodynamic monitoring in a cohort of 21 patients managed by pulmonary artery pressure sensor-guided therapy. Each patient had custom-designed target pulmonary artery pressure that indicated their clinical stability. We looked at the control of their pulmonary artery pressures before and after the pandemic and found that there was an increased frequency of deviation of pulmonary artery pressures beyond the target level in the two months after the pandemic. What is most encouraging, though, is Despite that increased frequency of deviation in pulmonary artery pressure beyond target level, our patients' time averaged continuous measures and clinical stability remained stable throughout the period. And we attribute this to two main factors. One, the use of rigorous remote patient monitoring programs like the pulmonary artery pressure guided therapy. And two, the fact that at our institution, we doubled the clinician-initiated contact to patients on taking their medications, dietary, and lifestyle-modifying behaviors, as my colleagues have mentioned. Great. Thanks very much for all three of your presentations. You know, I think that there's a common theme here. I think that in all three of your studies, you showed a decrease in uh, hospitalizations in the survey and then in PRIAs and OZ studies which is uh, consistent with what's being reported in general of substantial reduction in the number of heart failure hospitalizations. And that's raised a lot of concern that 
that a lot of patients may be staying home, having symptoms, and uh, might otherwise uh, have come to the emergency room for treatment, but are afraid of COVID and, and uh, so forth. But your studies seem to suggest that that's not necessarily a bad result, that maybe we're in fact taking better care of our patients with heart failure. We've had to make this transition to virtual health and maybe more frequent contacts. And so I'm interested in each of your thoughts on the broader implications of the studies that you've presented and whether or not COVID-19 is perhaps presenting an opportunity for all of us who take care of patients with heart failure to do a better job in the outpatient environment. Your thoughts? I did part of this experience as a heart failure fellow. And now as new faculty, I am really inspired by carrying this forward. You know, unfortunately, I don't know that COVID-19 is going to end next week. I think it's going to be with us for longer than we'd like it to be. But that being said, I think that gives us a real opportunity to hone the expertise and the lessons we've learned from this era and implement them. So I will say that some of the things that I've learned is that the technology is there, but the implement the devil is in the details. So how do you get your patients enabled? You know, you also have to be cognizant of the fact that there are technological limitations in the country where people don't have stable internet access, et cetera, et cetera. So what other means are there to reach people and how to establish what that baseline is? So we are really reaching out to patients when they do have a hospitalization or have a point of care of contact with us to find out what resources that are available, even if it is just a televisit via phone, for that to be a robust part of their care in the next couple of months. The other thing is also to equip people with scales some very basic things. So they are able to generate objective data for us to make clinical decision algorithms and run our algorithms through with objective data, a thermometer, a scale, a blood pressure cuff, teaching somebody how to use these things. So these things that we took sort of as, you know, just pluses, bonuses, if people came in with their blood pressure log, that they become a more standard part of the armamentarium that patients are empowered to use and when they use telemedicine to guide their care. And the last piece I will say is really this interest in remote monitoring where using you know, PA catheters as well as some of these other devices that are, I think, really underutilized at some centers around the country. Some do a better job than others, and it does require quite a lot of manpower to kind of mine through the data and to make sense of what impedance values are up and what this number means and to really have more points of contact with patients. But it gives us the ability to get pretty precise data points with the patient never stepping into a hospital and never exposing themselves. Yeah, so I think that's a real challenge that some uh, smaller clinics and certainly practitioners who are seeing a small number of heart failure patients don't have the resources to do PA catheter monitoring and and so forth. So I think that that still is going to be a relatively limited niche area. When available, great, but we're still going to be managing most of our heart failure patients without the benefit of uh, PA catheter monitoring. Other other thoughts, Colleen or Oz? Yeah, thanks, uh, Dr. Uh, The other point that I thought we learned from this COVID-19 pandemic is that I think we have underestimated how well-equipped our patients are to deal with virtual care and actually how amenable they are, including the elderly. 
and I am impressed about how they accept well, to take it, to take in part of this technology and joining it and actually demanding that they have their next appointments in virtual visits rather than face-to-face -face visits. And I hope that even beyond the pandemic era, beyond this, we need to transition virtual care into a routine uh, part of medical care that will not only be more effective, but also cost-effective like for our future. Yeah, that's a good point. You can almost imagine patients thinking, well, gee, I can't go to the hospital. I can't go to my doctor's office. Maybe I really need to take better care of myself and do the things that they've told me to do before, not eat salt and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, maybe that's happening. It'd be interesting <laughs> to know that with some type of a future study. Colleen, any further uh, comments? Yeah, I would just add in conjunction to what both Priya and Oz said, which I agree with, but I also think we need to focus on looking at revising potentially our guidelines and protocols around telehealth care delivery, including assessment. And Priya mentioned things like objective assessment and what would be necessary for patients to have in the home. I also would just comment too that billing and reimbursement certainly became an issue with telehealth care delivery, especially we're at the University of Colorado, where we see patients from all of the surrounding states. And in being the only advanced heart failure center in the region, we had established relationships with patients throughout these states, but we were unable to see them via telehealth because we needed to be licensed in the states in which we were providing care. And so I think there is definitely an area for improvement in how we can advocate in providing care across state lines, especially for patients who are speaking more advanced and specialty care. Yeah, those are great points. And you know, I, I would just add the issue of cardiac rehabilitation services with respect to the reimbursement. We're uh, beginning to offer um, completely home-based cardiac rehabilitation program for our patients, but reimbursement for that is very poor at this point. So that's an area that could be greatly expanded. We all know that most of our heart failure patients could benefit from a cardiac rehab program, regardless of their ejection fraction, which is what the guidelines say with respect to cardiac rehab and what is approved by CMS. But I think expansion of rehabilitation services and reimbursement for services would be a great step forward in general for care for our heart failure patients. So with that, I'd like to thank Drs. McElvenon, Umapathy, and Umufla for uh, what's been a really enlightening discussion at the journal. We're dedicated to providing the most up-to-date and clinically useful studies relevant to all aspects of heart failure care. And in that regard, we have an open call for papers on pregnancy and heart failure for a forthcoming focus issue for details on that and other things that are going on at the journal, please visit our website at onlinejcf.com. I'd also like to encourage our listeners to tune in to our other podcasts, receive our tweets at at jcardfail, and of course, submit your work to the journal. Until next time, I'm Mike Rich on behalf of the JCF and the Heart Failure Beat.